The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within the yard of hell. So Acts chapter 19, we're looking at verses 8 through 20. Let me read and then I'll pray and then we'll dive in. So begin in verse 8 of chapter 19. The Word of God says, He entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. That had to have been a sight. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. And let me pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the privilege we have of being together this morning to study your word together and to hear from you. I pray, Father, that you would come and invade our space. Not our space, it's yours, because you're the one that gives us the breath that we breathe. And so, Father, we come to pray that you would come and, and just let your spirit move in our midst as a breath of fresh air to our hearts. I pray, God, that you would um, help us um, to see what it means to um, battle uh, the darkness both inside of us and outside of us, the power of a crucified, risen, and returning Jesus. I pray that you would do all of that and then some. We love you. Amen. 
Hey, look, the, the passage in front of us this morning really is a, a case study in making war against the darkness. That's really what's taking place in this passage. Um, it is the second week, so to speak, or our second installment of uh, um, Paul's efforts, really God's work through Paul in planting a church in the city of Ephesus. Anytime the gospel advances into a new area, think about this, whether that new area is a new culture or it's a new place deep within our hearts as we live and grow in Christ, every time the gospel advances, the darkness that is there is going to rear its ugly head. John Calvin, uh, commenting on this passage, he says this, He says, the heavenly doctrine, which is the gospel, has this particular power that it either turns the reprobate, the rebellious sinner, into a fury for the Lord, or it makes them more obstinate, more rebellious. He says, this this happens because when the truth presses hard on us, or on them, Their hidden venom breaks out. Calvin had a way with words. The truth of the gospel does have this peculiar way of shaking up the darkness that is still alive and present inside of us, as well as the darkness that surrounds us, this darkness that we live in in this culture. But the fascinating thing is that it also has this miraculous way of attacking and, and dividing and then defeating or overpowering that darkness too. I saw a video um, on some social media platform this week where the guy was wrestling with this philosophical idea of whether darkness actually exists as a thing or not. I don't know if I completely agree with him. I agree with the sense of what he was saying. At the end of the day, he said, no, darkness doesn't necessarily exist as a thing Darkness exists because of the lack of the presence of light. So in a philosophical sense, there's some truth to that for sure. In this instance, what we're looking at is something that is darkness, that does exist. And what needs to happen is the light of the gospel needs to advance into it, light it up, and chase it away like cockroaches. Now, you might remember um, last week, uh, if you heard last week's sermon, you'd remember how the gospel began to advance into the city of Ephesus, right? Um, Last week, what we saw is you had this power couple, this dynamic duo, you might say, Priscilla and Aquila, and they, they ministered to Apollos and really strengthened him and his ministry, sent him off to Corinth to continue ministering there, while Paul is actually in the midst of leading 12 brand new dudes to salvation in Christ Jesus. That's basically the passage from last week. What happened and what we saw last week is the core team was being assembled, put together to plant this church in Ephesus. It was now a core team of 15 people, and you might want to remember, 12 of those people were brand new baby believers which gives my heart some comfort. You also can't miss the cultural moment. You have to think about the culture of Ephesus when when you do a study here. 
Um, so I don't want us to miss the cultural moment, what's taking place in the culture of Ephesus. Um, understanding the culture of a given place um, is absolutely vital to any kind of evangelistic endeavor that's going to take place. And one commentator says this about Ephesus. He says that Ephesus was the watering hole for every kind of magician, every kind of witch, every kind of clairvoyant, every kind of criminal. It's a melting pot. He said this, he said, con artists, murderers, and perverts all found the climate of Ephesus unusually agreeable. Well, Ephesus was definitely a place that was overflowing with darkness, okay? Now, I think it's also helpful when you think about Ephesus, because we have an entire book in the Bible called Ephesians, which Paul wrote later after planting the church there, it's helpful for us to think about the book of Ephesians for a moment. You might go back a few sermons in our sermon series around the beginning of the year. I think I preached an entire, all the way through the entire book of Ephesians in one Sunday. Um, so you might go back and listen to that. It might give you um, some more as you're thinking about this passage, if you think about it the rest of the week. But it's helpful for us to go back to Ephesians 6. and Think about Ephesians 6, right? Ephesians 6, if you look at verses 11 through 12, Paul instructs the Ephesians, and it's a familiar passage to a lot of us, but he instructs the Ephesians to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present what? Darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so, this passage, Ephesians 6, that's written by the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians against a cultural backdrop, the culture in Ephesus. And the cultural backdrop in Ephesus included some things like the Temple of Artemis, and you might be like, Arta who? Um, what's the Temple of Artemis? The Temple of Arnibus, or Artemis? Um, the way I describe it, Artemis is a um, was they had a big statue of this goddess, so-called goddess named Artemis. And she was a what I would call a pornographic, a multi-breasted. I, th- I can't remember how many there are, but I think there's a, a hundred or so breasts on the front. Um, that statue of that goddess, she was the goddess of fertility. That statue was in this temple. So you have that. And not to mention you have the presence of black magic. You got the presence of occultism. You have the, the presence of what, what was called then temple prostitutes. Um, so that they had tied sex to the worship of a god. Ephesus was as dark as the middle of a moonless night in my mind. Dark. It's a ripe place for the gospel to shine brightly. I want you to think with me for a minute about the darkness that doesn't just surround you and I in our culture, but I want you to think about the darkness that is still alive and well inside of you. If you go back to Ephesians again, again, just building context here, if you go back to Ephesians, you look at chapter 4, verses 17 through 20, listen to what Paul tells the Ephesians later on down the road after planting there. Again, he's already led a bunch of people to Jesus, planted a church, it's thriving. He left some leaders in place. He's down the road doing ministry elsewhere, and he writes this. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are what? 
darkened. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. Doesn't that ring true for that culture? Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's a catch-all phrase, every kind of impurity. The sense there is that if Paul was going to list out all of the impurities, it would take a book. Does that not ring true in terms of the culture we live in? But does that not also ring true in terms of the darkness that may still be alive inside of you? Why would Paul say these things to Christians? Why would he say these things to Christians in Ephesus unless he knew that Christians would still struggle with darkness deep down inside our very hearts? When you hear these words from Paul to the Ephesians, how do you receive them? Do you hear them as a, man, I wish some people out in our world today would hear this? Or maybe it's like, man, I wish my spouse would hear this. <laughs> or my children. Easy, you two. <laughs> or, or do you hear this passage and does it, does it humble you? Are you not humbled by the realization that darkness is very much alive and well inside of you? Are you not humbled when you think about how often that darkness inside of you still raises its ugly head from within the contours of your own heart and mind, even though you claim to follow Jesus? Obviously, I'm speaking primarily to those of us in the room that are believers. You're here and you're not yet a believer. And you're hearing this and it does humble you, then there's, there's hope, right? Your heart may not be so hardened that you're too far gone. God in his grace may be speaking to you in these moments about that darkness he wants to chip away at inside of you. I think it's difficult to say the least, uh, to, to, to just deal or wrestle with the reality of the darkness within me. Uh, maybe it's the same for you. When, you. when you really just stop for a moment and you, you just settle down, you just push everything else away and you go, you know, for all the maybe the bad things going on around me, maybe all the, the horrible things that were done to me, there's still something really dark deep down inside of me. And I think that can be difficult. Just for us as humans, number one, but number two, I don't think the culture around us that we've been raised in, even if it's a church culture, I don't, I don't even think church culture has done a great job of doing that, of, of, of helping us to wrestle with what's inside of us. So it's definitely difficult um, to do that. I think it's easier to look around us and see the cultural darkness that we live in, right? A few things that came to mind this week as I was thinking about that. You got, we've got, we're living in a weird time right now, aren't we? I mean, we got unspeakable horrors happening all around us, all across the globe as nations are warring against each other. That's 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 a product of darkness. 
untold numbers of babies have been murdered senselessly in the womb, some halfway out of the womb. That's a horror. For the sake of momentary pleasure, typically. That's, that's the culture we live in. I thought of this too. Sexual perversion of every kind is absolutely out of control. There, there's not even any control on it anymore. It used to be that you'd have to search pretty far and wide to find pornographic material. Now, I'm sitting there yesterday looking at reels on Facebook with my wife, and, and there's stuff popping up, and I'm like, holy smokes. It is so accessible. And on top of that, if you think about how dark our culture is right now around us, we're living in a time where some, and I, I think a very powerful group in our culture, is trying to add sexual attraction to children to the list of what is acceptable. That makes me sick. So I, I don't think I have to say much more to uh, convince any of us that we are living in a very, very dark time. And we also have a lot of darkness inside of us that we're personally prone to. The question is, what is God's plan for that darkness? How do we engage in war against it? You see that in the passage. First thing you see, um, verses 8 through 12, is um, you need to launch a full-scale attack on darkness. First thing, first basic principle, launch a full-scale attack on darkness. You might ask, well, how do you do that? Glad you asked. Who asked that? Anybody here asked that besides me? All right, yes, there's one. Good. Verses 8 through 12, Paul, <laughs> this is sarcastic, it's not a spiritual gift, so... <laughs> Maybe it is. No, it's not. In verses 8 through 12, um, what do you see Paul doing? Paul spent three months preaching the gospel. Easy to just kind of read past that and go, yo, okay, well, that was Paul on me. Paul spent three months preaching the gospel, reasoning with the gospel, persuading with the gospel. Those are actually the three words that are used in our English Bibles. Preaching, reasoning, persuading. He did this in the synagogue, okay? He literally preached the gospel powerfully. He reasoned with the gospel logically. He persuaded forcefully against the darkness that was alive and well inside the hearts of his listeners as well as within the culture they all lived in. But, just read the story so you probably remember, Despite all of his hard work for those three months, despite all of his efforts, there were some people in the room who became stubborn. They became hard-hearted. They were unbelievers. They had the look of believers on them because they were in a synagogue. But they were unbelievers. They began to say evil things about Christians. I'm sure you've heard people say evil things about Christians today. Right? Christians are bigots. We're narrow-minded. We're hypocritical, we believe fairy tales, we're judgmental, and the list goes on and on. And here's the reality. To most of those accusations, the answer is yes, you're right, guilty. In most cases. Why I need Jesus? See, the gospel, the great thing about the gospel is it actually subverts all the arguments. A friend of mine named Bob who does this so well, but uh, fascinates me to watch this guy do what he does when he talks about the gospel subverting two ends of an argumentation. When somebody accuses me of something, rather than arguing back, it's just like, you know what, yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. There's probably more sin about me than I even know. 
And if we were to approach conversations that way in our culture, we'd probably get a little bit further. Those accusations, though, were what these unbelievers had against Paul. And so what does Paul do? Well, of course Paul jumps up on a podium and yells louder. Of course he goes to Fox News and tries to get a bigger platform. Of course that's, no, that's not what he does, is it? He doesn't stand his ground fighting against those who rejected him, but he didn't quit fighting either. He withdrew from the synagogue. And I think he withdrew from the synagogue as a man who waged war peacefully. Take that phrase and think about that. He was a man who waged war peacefully because he knew what it was like to be at peace with God. He had believed the gospel. He knew that his, his old enemy, God, because he was God's enemy for a long time, God had provided a way for him to be at peace with him. And out of that deep reservoir of true peace, he waged war with peace. He continued preaching. He continued reasoning. He continued persuading with the gospel, but he did it in a different place. And, and it's fascinating when you look at where he did it. I did it in a rented public hall of philosophy. That's where he went. Uh, it was owned by a man who uh, literally the rendition of his name, I think in, in the scriptures is Tyrannus or Tyrannus. Uh, it literally means the tyrant. <laughs> He's a philosopher known as the tyrant in Ephesus. Like Nobody could win arguments with this dude. And Paul basically uses a local secular university that's basically teaching the Greek pagan religion he uses that place and he rents it and he sets up what i call a rescue mission within a yard of hell right and he keeps preaching and he keeps reasoning and he keeps persuading with the gospel and if you do the study once again you go back to some of the ancient documents you find that paul preached there in that rented hall doing set up and tear down church just like some of us used to do in this church he did that we did it at the y a much better place i think than where he was at but it's fascinating when you, when you figure out that he, Paul would have actually preached five hours a day. Now, I can see the looks on your faces. This is not going to be licensed for me to preach for five hours. <laughs> and we laugh. We laugh. And, and, I, and I got a chuckle out when I thought of this, but I also thought how far removed we are as a Western culture church from what Paul did to plant a church. We are spoiled rotten he preached for five hours a day 11 a.m to 4 p.m because in the culture of ephesus they would have worked early morning to about 11 a.m would have been lunchtime and lunchtime would have lasted until 4 p.m because the hottest part of the day and then after four till about nine o'clock at night they would have gone back to work so paul would have got up early in the morning made a bunch of tents so not to put pressure on the new believers so he was working for free preached five hours a day for free and then went back to work that evening and then got up in the morning and did it all over again and he didn't just do this once a week. So I want to bring this to bear on our American culture church that we are planted in, right? He did this six days a week. So six days a week, 11 to 4, 30 hours of preaching, right? I got it right? That's wild, isn't it? 30, can you even imagine you sitting under 30 hours of preaching a week? It is from Paul, though. It's true. I don't know if we have any Pauls. <laughs> Yet at the same time, 
30 hours of preaching, not only being the one who's doing it, but the one who's receiving. You could never convince me that preaching is not one of the main ways to launch a full-scale attack against darkness. Now, alongside Paul's preaching, you keep moving your way through this first chunk of text, God chose to do some really extraordinary things, out of the ordinary things. Now, he already uses the word miracle, but he places extraordinary next to the word miracle. Okay? When that happens, this is not your average, everyday, run-of-the-mill miracle, although miracles in and of themselves are already extraordinary. This is like he says extraordinary twice. This is extraordinary, extraordinary, okay? But these are miracles of a kind that you don't see anywhere else. That's the point. And when, when God chooses to do this through Paul in this moment, I think it's just a dazzling display of power. And I think it would have rivaled any magician or, or any practicing witch in Ephesus. I think that's the reason God chose to do this in this cultural moment. He healed the sick, cast out demons, and he did it with sweaty rags and work aprons. Most commentators believe this would have been Paul's literal sweaty handkerchiefs and aprons from working. The sweat, one commentator says, the sweat of Paul's hard work literally became a weapon of mass destruction in the hands of our reigning king against darkness. Now, again, you know, to your point, this is Paul. But can I ask you, what, what makes you think that you couldn't do some of the same hard work. I'm not saying the same exact miracles. But what makes you think you couldn't work just as hard as Paul? Why couldn't you listen to sermons 30 hours a week? Why couldn't you proclaim the gospel 30 hours a week? I'll tell you, the first two or three reasons that came up in your mind, they're not reasons, they're excuses. You just believe their reason. And it's a lie. And you've believed that lie because the darkness has gotten a hold of you. The sweat of Paul's hard work literally became a weapon of mass destruction in the hands of a reigning king against the darkness that was oppressing his listeners. And let's not forget, too, that, that Paul kept up that full frontal assault on the darkness for how long? Two years, right? Two years. And what was the result? The result is verse 10. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord because of one man and 14 other people. Between them, and 12 of those being very new believers, in a span of two years and three months, all of the residents of Asia heard the word regardless of their background. So, I would say this. Launching any full-scale attack against the darkness, either inside of us or outside of us, has got to be centered on the preaching and reasoning and persuading with the gospel. And it should be accompanied with hard work and sweat. Oh, it's interesting because in America, we, we, we have this built into our DNA, right? It's part of our culture. Primarily, America is full of hardworking people who are willing to go to bat and willing to sweat hard, willing to die for country, right? It's built into what we live in. And at the end of the day, I think our responsibility, when, when you look at this and you think about it, we have a responsibility to sit under the preaching of God's word. And then to also proclaim God's word, not only to ourselves, but to everyone around us. And in doing so, why would we expect it to be an easy task? It should not be easy. It should be hard. It should be difficult. It should be a fight. But we do love comfort, don't we? We build all sorts of idols around comfort. Our uh, culture, 
we shift to our culture, man. Our verse of the day, 15 minutes of scripture reading with the morning coffee or lackluster attendance to study the Bible with other believers on a weekly basis, prolonged absences from Sunday gatherings. This is American culture. This isn't just our church, okay? This is American culture. This is the church culture in America. We are individualistic more than obedient to God's word. You got prolonged absences from Sunday gatherings. You got general boredom with scripture memorization. That seems to characterize the Western church. Here, here's what all that produces, I think, in, in our church culture in, in, in the Western American front. It produces a group of Christians who show up to fight darkness with water guns instead of fully loaded ammo or assault rifles. That's what it's like. My prayer, I think, as I thought about this, is that the Lord would soften our hearts, if we are guilty of any of this. Because those are just hard-hearted sins, I think, Scripture. My hope is that if that is true of any of us, we'd turn in repentance. And that as we turn in repentance, we, we would fall in love with hearing the gospel preached. Fall in love with hearing the gospel being reasoned to us being persuaded by that gospel. Listen, if the gospel is not being preached to you on a regular basis, then you cannot preach the gospel to yourself on a regular basis. And the, the flip side of that is if you're not preaching the gospel to yourself, then what are you listening to? There's only one or the other. It's just lies on the other side. I thought about this in a very practical way, and I'm going to move on. But the one really practical thing I thought of, man, I love rock and roll. I love rap. I love some country. I'll figure that out a few weeks ago. We will not have to utter those stories anymore. <clears throat> I love all kinds of music. So I have a what I call a motorcycle riding playlist. It's like 10 hours long. And it's got everything from Shinedown to ACDC, Old Kid Rock, some current Jelly Roll. Okay, now y'all know. <laughs> I didn't listen to any country in there, did I? I don't think I did. <laughs> Uh, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, I mean, Stevie Ray Vaughan, I love, I love what I would call good music. That's my playlist. One of the things I've realized over the years is there's probably nothing wrong with listening to some of that music to an extent, as long as you're choosing music that doesn't have, like, nasty, filthy content in it, right? <laughs> but I also notice something that goes on inside the contours of my soul with what I'm putting in. And the old principle is when you put in garbage, what comes out is garbage. Okay, and so... I've noticed that if I, if I shift over to some really good Christian music, there is something that changes deep down inside of me. Now, I don't know what your, your rhythm of music is, but I can tell you there is some dang good Christian rap and Christian rock out there. I don't know if there's good country. I mean, how, can you recreate country and make it good? I mean, you always lose the dog and the truck and the wife and whatever. How do, how do you even have country? I mean, you can't make it Christian, I don't think. Anyways, that's just one, that's just my, my one little thing. Personally, I've been practicing this, like I, I uh, and I've noticed, I've noticed changes in my soul. So I, I think, you know, it comes back to a principle of uh, whatever's beneficial, so on and so forth, not like overloading. Nothing wrong with listening to different kinds of music, but I need to really re-up that with good, solid gospel content. I'm never going to stand in front of you and go, don't listen to rock music. That's a sin, because that's stupid. You can't prove that. But country? <laughs> All right. Point two, 
Point two, because I want to eat food, and I'm sure you do too. Um, second way we do this um, is, is watch for the darkness dividing around you. Okay? Watch for that. Because the darkness does divide against itself in our text, right? Verses 13 through 16, what do you meet? Who do you find? Find some Jewish exorcists. Now you put those two together, it's really fascinating. Jewish exorcists. These guys are attempting to imitate what God was doing through the Apostle Paul, okay? In that day and age, Jewish exorcists were basically spiritual posers. And what they were doing is they were attempting to fleece God's people for money in exchange for spiritual benefits. We've seen these guys. They're still alive and well today, right? Joel Osteen, I name names. They're right on our TVs. Give us your money so I can get another jet. You know, or three of them, four of them, or whatever it is. That's what these guys were doing, fleecing God's people, much like the health, wealth, and prosperity preachers of our day. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is so kind to give us an actual example, these seven sons of Sceva. I kind of envision these guys like you know, Joe Pesci from um, you know, Goodfellas, and there's seven of them. There's seven Joe Pesci's running around. Okay? That's just the way I see it. Um, these seven sons of Sceva were those kinds of spiritual posers, okay? They were renegade Jewish exorcists. They were operating, I believe, under the demonic influence of probably greed, fame, probably power, at least, if not more. And these guys tried to invoke the name of Paul's Jesus, and they wound up getting attacked by the very man whose evil spirit they were attempting to exorcise. So the moral of the story here is this. You cannot fake it until you make it in the Christian faith. You can't, especially if you're going to do battle against darkness. There's no such thing as fake it until you make it. No amount of spiritual posing is going to defeat the darkness inside of you or around you. The light of the gospel cannot be imitated by the darkness to produce kingdom results. When fakers, under the cover of actual darkness, attempt to imitate the light... What are the results going to be? It's always going to be erosion from within because a house divided against itself cannot stand. So part of God's plan for defeating the darkness is to simply use the darkness against itself, which I really love about God's plans. Right? Now, nowhere can you see this more clearly outside of our current text than at the cross of Jesus. Right? At the cross of Jesus is where a dark and demonic instrument of death was used by God to divide Satan, sin, and death against themselves as Jesus won our salvation once and for all. Isn't that crazy? That that's how God would do it. Would use darkness against itself to produce exactly what he meant to produce the whole time. Think about Satan He's the poser of all posers, right? Scripture says that he is a liar and the father of all lies. He thought he'd won the war, I think, that day on that hill called Calvary, that old rugged cross. I think he thought he'd won. But the reality, I've been listening to this song lately, and I'm talking about Christian songs, listening to this song lately, it helped me put this together in my mind. I think the reality is that Jesus, according to the line in this song, left Satan choking on the blood that ran down the cross. I love that line of that song. Stick with me forever. Left Satan choking on the blood that ran down the cross. 
So I thought about these principles of raging, raging war on the darkness within us, either inside of us or around us. Man, I, for me, I just, it just caused me to pause at my desk, and probably multiple times uh, driving around somewhere. It just caused me to pause and just ask the Lord, like, would you reveal any areas of duplicity within me? Would you show me, uncover any areas of double-mindedness or pride or lust or unforgiveness, jealousy, coldness, anger, self-reliance, bitterness? The list just goes on and on. It just caused me to pause and just ask, God, please, please show me any areas of my life where I'm living as a fake. Because the reality is all that darkness inside of me and all that darkness inside of you, it would love to pair up with religious language and justify itself. <coughs> thanks, thanks to God. Like if you do humble yourself and you ask God to reveal those things, he, he's faithful to show up and divide that darkness against itself. And in the midst of doing that, what he does is he leads us to repentance. And that's the final blow in the text, darkness. You defeat darkness with repentance. Look at verses 17 through 19. Luke tells us that when news of the fakers who tried to make it, but they wound up naked in the street, right? (laughs) Wild. When the news of what happened reached everybody else's ears in Ephesus, they were struck with fear. They were filled with fear because the darkness had been divided against itself by the light of the gospel. And so this citywide fear resulted, according to the text, in the name of the Lord Jesus being magnified, made great. It was the big story on the news. Jesus did this. A whole bunch of brand new believers began confessing their sins. Like citywide repentance and confession. They began repenting publicly and radically, and in a very costly way, too. They literally burned $50 million worth of literature that was witchcraft literature. Fifty. Can you imagine if your repentance was going to cost you $50 million? How fast we would all be like, whoa, bro. Now, draw the line somewhere. Can you imagine repentance costing you this much? Repentance. What is it? Turning away, right? Turning away from sin. But it's not just turning away from sin, because whatever you turn away from, you have to turn to something. So repentance begins with confession and ends with this costly destruction of anything that promoted the sin in your life. And this is what ultimately defeats the darkness in the text. It's ultimately what defeats the darkness in us and around us. Why? Because repentance is something that takes place at the foot of a bloody cross. It takes place in the doorway of an empty tomb. It, it takes place in light of the hope of heaven. That's where repentance takes place. See, our salvation was costly. It cost Jesus' life. His broken body has shed blood. Therefore, our repentance should be costly as well, shouldn't it? Half-hearted repentance, which is really no repentance at all, that's not going to beat the shoes off of darkness within us or around us. It's only going to lead to further slipping into the darkness until the light can no longer be seen. That's what half-hearted repentance is. That would be my concern for us, that we might ever fall into that, and that we wouldn't actually walk in repentance on a daily basis. 
In conclusion, listen, I'm not sure what level of darkness you walked in struggling with today. I want to be clear about a few things as we wrap it up. I'll be clear. Satan, sin, and death are not going to be held at bay through half-hearted religion. They're not going to be beaten with a fake-it-until-you-make-it type of Christianity. They're certainly not going to be phased by imitation repentance. Satan comes to condemn, sin comes to tempt, death comes to oppress. You need to remember that. Something that I latched on to years ago has been helpful to me. Condemnation comes from Satan. Temptation comes from sin. Oppression comes from death. Condemnation, temptation, and oppression are very real weapons used by our enemy. And you can't submit to them. See, submission to Satan's condemning lies is always going to produce downtrodden Christians who live in the prison cell of tortured minds. Submission to temptation is always going to produce double-minded Christians who can't stand against evil because their secret lives are rotting with sin. Submission to uh, oppression, death's taunting threats. You submit to that, it's always going to produce weak Christians who live only for the pleasures of today as we do the bare minimum to get by. The only reason, our closing verse, which is verse 20, the only reason it says that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily is because God was waging war with the gospel. The gospel was waging war against the darkness in the hands of this tiny little team of authentic believers. I don't think there were any fakers in that core team, no matter how young they were in the Lord. They were committed to the costly, hard work of preaching, reasoning, persuading, repenting. Now, I've often experienced, because I don't want you guys to think that I'm like far above some of this, I've often experienced some, some heavy seasons of darkness, Right? Seasons of spiritual condemnation and heavy temptation, heavy oppression, wondered at times why it seemed maybe as though the darkness was actually winning, that like I couldn't catch hold of any kind of victory. Um, Witnessed that same pattern in other believers, other brothers and sisters in Christ. And um, I think the underlying issues are always the same. When, when I evaluate, especially in hindsight because it's 2020, in those situations, it's usually because the gospel's not being preached. It's because religious fakeries become part of my norm, right? Just learned how to speak religious language. Just faking it. I ain't making it, right? <clears throat> Repentance typically is being replaced with some kind of generalized confession. Yeah, bro, I fail. I fail all the time. I'm just a sinner. That's generalized. That's not specific. That's a water gun. That's not, that's not a fully loaded assault rifle. And on top of it, the Word of God, I think, in those seasons was not increasing or prevailing powerfully in my life. So, so what, what happens in those seasons is what, what's happening to me is I'm losing my love for hearing the Word preached, right? I'm losing my love for studying the Bible with other believers. I'm, I'm beginning to just do the bare minimum to get by, becoming a spiritual poser. Maybe time spent, Sunday gatherings, Bible studies, maybe those seasons would be dismal you know, at best. And lastly, then, according to this passage, I could see in my journey, in those seasons where the cost of my repentance 
was a lot more like leftover pocket change rather than something very valuable. Basically, what had happened in those seasons of my life is I'd become a spiritual poser. I was in danger of being kicked out in the street by some demonic force of darkness. I'm sure that you have experienced things like that. Maybe you're experiencing it now. If so, and if you're wondering how to overcome that, repent. Turn away from sin. Turn towards Jesus. Do that in an authentic and costly fashion. It should cost you. It should be hard. Repent for your lack of love for God and His gospel, and ultimately for your lack of love for the point of the gospel, which is God's only Son, our crucified, risen, and returning Savior. <coughs> when you think about this, the cross was bloody for you. The tomb was empty for you. The promise of heaven is for you. And all that is for us as a community, as a family. Let the realization of the gospel motivate you to a newfound fear and awe of the Lord. When I, when I find somebody who's bored with God, I find somebody who at the end of the day has lost their fear of God. They do not tremble anymore at the thought of God. Let that newfound fear and awe motivate you to fall in love with the Word of God who became flesh, dwelt among us, was crucified, risen, promised to return so that we might be with Him forever. That's a powerful gospel message. Lay down your water guns, right? Lay down your water guns. Your water guns are full of gospel boredom. Your water gun is full of spiritual fakery. Your water gun is full of false repentance. Lay that down. Pick up a fully loaded assault rifle. One that's loaded with a bloody cross. One that's loaded with an empty tomb. One that's loaded with a promise of heaven. Take that. Get in the war against the darkness inside of you as well as the darkness around you. The gospel. The answer is the gospel. Always the gospel. But the point of the gospel is Jesus. Crucified, risen, and returning. Amen? Pray. Father, thank you for your word. Pray this morning, God, that uh, if we've been convicted of any of the things that we've heard this morning, God, that you would help us to confess and repent turn to you and to be refreshed to find new joy to be renewed by Jesus trust that you'll do that in Jesus name everybody said